Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 6. And um, while you're turning there, and that's where we'll be most of the time today, I want to say, some of you know, others don't, it's okay. The intent uh, coming into this week was to preach the sermon on racial reconciliation. You know, it's an issue and a cause that I'm dear it's dear to me and, and to, uh, I think, dear to our church, really. I see so much growth happening in that area, and I, I credit it to the Lord working in our hearts uh, what He desires through His Word and through strong teaching on that through the years. And we will have that sermon, but just not today. Um, Thursday afternoon, midday, I guess, the uh, urge to make a change became, um, became increasingly undeniable. And I don't pretend, and I don't want you to hear that, I, do, I don't play the game of God told me something. Okay? Um, but I do believe God leads us as we study His Word, as we think, and as we meet, and as we talk with one another, and as we hear the body of Christ speaking that God often leads us and changes direction for us and our own passions and hearts head a direction. I, I do believe that. And I think that's what happened on Thursday. Although I hold up the possibility that, 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 that it was just me. Okay? And uh, that could be the case. That the study from Thursday till today was about me. Matter of fact, I, I know it was about me. And I know my own heart, my own tendencies as well as I can. I became very passionate, very burdened, um, shared with my wife, shared with every elder, uh, called them all and polled them and asked them their permission to change, and which they thought was crazy, most of them. Like, you're, you're the one doing it, so do it, you know. But I don't like this. I don't like, I don't like to freelance. I don't like to just go off and, and preach a hobby horse sermon of some kind, and I don't think that's what this is. I do want to say up front that it will be probably, as you can tell, it will probably be very passionate. And I don't want anyone in here to think my passion is directed at you, except that you're one of us. And I do want to address what I think to be a danger for our church, not for the churches out there. I'm not this morning talking about all the churches that surround us, the 431 other churches in this county. I'm not interested in them. I'm interested in us. And I, and I do want to speak as a family member. Someone who is struggling with you in these issues. Struggling to understand and apply the gospel. All of us are struggling. Okay? But this is very much, I think, an issue that is real to many of you. I think that because I talk to many of you. I, I was thinking about it yes, Friday and yesterday. I probably talked to 25, 30 people in this church every week. Some of them on a weekly basis, and I rotate talking to different people. So I have a good grasp, pretty much, on what the flock, how the flock's doing most of the time. So yes, if you're seeing, you say, well, I had a conversation with Carlton this last month. No, I'm not preaching a sermon at you. But I will say, it might fit you. Because this sermon should fit us all. Okay, and so I want to say that up front. I want to be very, I don't want to be sneaky. 
Yes, this subject arose in my own heart through prayer, through study, through meeting with you. And saying, we've got an issue that's risen up and it's urgent. We need to deal with it. And secondly, I want to say, um, I take full responsibility. Because for the most part, I have preached from this pulpit. And so where there are shallowness and shallow beliefs in this church, I take the responsibility. So I'm not thundering at you. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is one of those chapters that I've studied over and over and over because of this reason. In Romans 1, Paul introduces his subject, his his subject for the whole book of Romans. Ryan preached the verse 16, Ryan Limbaugh, a couple weeks ago. Verse 17 is the thesis statement of the whole book. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. This statement is a mystery to the human nature. The righteous live by the law. That's what you would expect. The righteous live by works and good deeds. That's what you would expect. But the Bible says just the opposite. The righteous live by faith in the Son of God. To finish the sentence. Faith in the promise of God in the word and thought of Habakkuk. Faith in the gospel, the message of the truth of the good news that has come to us through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. That's how we live, by faith. And then in verse, verse 18 of chapter 1, he transitions and goes all the way through 3, verse, uh, thir- verse 19, where he convinces the whole world of their sinfulness. He puts all men under sin, everybody, the pagan idolater, the legal moralist, and the Jewish law follower. All have sinned. All have fallen short. All have missed the mark. We are all like a brood of vipers with the poison of asps under our tongues. This is who we are. We are an open grave in our flesh. We are all sinners. And then in verse 20 of chapter 3, he transitions in 3, 20 through 5, is this great, 5.11, is this great uh, argument, this great uh, teaching of the Gospel. The good news. He gave the bad news so He could give the good news, which is, the righteousness of God has been revealed in Christ Jesus, the keeper of the law. The just has become the justifier. And you have Him by faith. Not by anything you've done. Not by anything you could ever do. Not by keeping obedience to the law. But because He came and put on flesh and lived for you. And you have believed in Him. And now you have Him. In verse five, in chapter 5, is a precious chapter where it transitions. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is one of those verses that's just the Gospel in a nutshell. What is the Gospel? Peace with God. You have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes through those 11 verses saying that when we were enemies of God's, when we were in the condition of 1, verse 18 through 3, verse 19, when we were one of those people, 
lawless pagan, law-abiding legalist, or Jew, you keeping the law, you were all, you were all the enemies of God. Every one of you. And now He loved you and He expressed His love by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and live a perfect, sinless, law-abiding, law-keeping, law-fulfilling, Old Testament-keeping, promiser-keeping Christ. That's Him. He is ours now. And we have peace with God. We have reconciliation. We have this beautiful, beautiful Gospel. Okay. And then in verse 12, he transitions in 512 through the end of the chapter, he transitions into a teaching that is crucial to our understanding of the gospel. And it's, it is, uh, in a sense, keeping with this subject prior, but it really introduces us to the next chapter. And chapter 6 through 8 is a division that, we will, uh, that, that we're getting into. And so he transitions. His transition is key. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. Everyone sinned. We didn't individually become sinners. We're all sinners. Everyone. From the Garden of Eden forward, everyone is a sinner. You did, you did, not, you did not get a vote in that matter. Your representative, Adam, voted for you. When he broke the covenant. When he sinned against God. He voted for you. Now, each person since him, beginning with his son, Cain, and lending with the last baby born in the last second. I don't know who it is. You're born into that sin, and as soon as you're old enough, you ratify that sin by your own willful choice. But that's not how you become a sinner. Paul says, don't ever miss it. You're a sinner because Adam's a sinner. And you are in Adam. That's called federal headship. It's called covenant theology. It's the theology of the Bible. It's organic to the Scriptures. This, this is the truth. Listen, you, if you are here today, are by nature a child of wrath. You, by nature, are a rebel against God. You are on a mission to destroy all God-honoring pleasure in the world and get your own pleasure. That's who you are in your nature. And you didn't vote on it. You didn't get a choice about it. You were born that way. You were born that way. And when you got your first choices out of the womb, you ratified the fact that you are a sinner. Okay? And he says that in verse 12. And then he argues, and he shows that truth to be true because he brings up Moses. And you might wonder in verse 14, what's this bit about yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even though... Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What is that all about? It's confusing if you're not careful. What he's saying is, the law didn't introduce sin and didn't make anybody damned for hell. The law of Moses didn't do that. Don't misunderstand. You are headed to hell because you are a child of Adam. He broke the covenant with God. He broke the arranged living condition whereby he might live in the beauty of the garden forever with his God. He broke that and all of us were in him and all of us broke the covenant. But though not like just like Adam in the sense that he 
did it first. He was our representative. And now because we're in Him, we're all breaking it. And what this system does, if you continue through the passage, it sets up the beautiful gospel system of federal headship. Adam's the head of the whole human race, and he is the type of the one who is coming. Who is that? The second Adam, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus is the second Adam. He's the representative who comes on the scene and represents all of His people. The righteous shall live by faith. Those people. The people who have placed their faith in Him as their representative. That's who Jesus represents. That's, who he, that's how He is our second Adam. And unlike the first Adam, this Adam doesn't break the covenant. He keeps the covenant. He does not sin. He resists temptation. He lives a perfectly heartfelt, heart-level obedience to God for all of His human life, and then He gives Himself actively and passively to righteousness in His death. And He pays the penalty of the sin of everyone who is in Him. Okay? Uh, I tell you all of that as simple introduction. Theological introduction to get us to chapter 6. Because at the end of chapter 5, one of those crucial statements is made. Verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to make it evident that everyone trespasses. To make it evident that everyone is sinners. And the law, because it witnesses to the moral goodness of God but gives no power to obey it, causes people to sin more. The law is righteous, but because we are unrighteous, when the law is before us witnessing the moral character of God, we hate the law, and therefore we go the other way. That's how the law increases sin. is because it witnesses to the goodness and holiness and set-apartness of God, and we look at it and say, I can't do that. More than that, we say, I don't want to do that. And we go the other way. So the law increases sin. In that way. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now we've introduced the problem that will be questioned in Paul's gospel and in the gospel of those who have preached at Grace Fellowship. Grace abounded all the more when sin increased, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the subject of chapter 6. That, those two verses tell us what chapter 6 is all about. The first question. This is, not an, this, is an, this is a question that comes from the Roman Christians. This is not a hypothetical question. This is a real question. And I think it's the question that many of us at Grace Fellowship are struggling with. Let me be very front forward. The personal habits, the marriage struggles that our congregation faces, they don't come from legalism. They come from the belief known as antinomianism. That's a big word to say, no law. The belief that when I was saved, by the gospel of grace, I no longer have to do anything that was in the law. The law has been completely done away with because I'm in Jesus. 
Look what, I think this is many of our heart levels question. This is, the, this, is the, this is what I hear being talked about that has brought me to preach this message. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I think that's the question. And some of you, and sometimes myself, we're answering the question, certainly! Sin! Because if I sin, then God loved me. And He'll pour grace out on me. And I got license. I'm not under the law anymore. I'm in Jesus. I'm free. And what I want to tell you and what Paul tells you in Romans 6 is there is no such thing on the face of the planet. There is no one who is a free man to himself. That is a wicked Lie that our culture preaches, but the Bible does not. No man is totally free. There is no such thing in the Bible as free to myself. You have no rights that flow from your heart. You only have rights in Christ. You don't have the right to determine for yourself what is right and what is wrong. That's been set out for you. And if you're a Christian, that is your life. Gospel freedom. We don't just want freedom. We want gospel freedom. What is gospel freedom? This is what Paul talks about. This is his subject in Romans chapter 6. And it's the subject that I think that is so much needed to be talked about among us. First of all, since grace abounded where there is sin, should we continue to sin? He addresses this question in verses 1 through 14. First of all, we would say we are in Christ through death, burial, and resurrection. That's shown to us beginning in verse 2. By no means. Paul's answer to, shall we sin? Continue in sin that grace may abound. And the answer from him is by no means. May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It is logically impossible to maintain that you can live in sin and be a Christian. That's what Paul just said. You cannot live in sin and be a believer. So if you look at your life today, and you say, I'm characterized, I'm known as a sinner, then you have a real issue. You have a real struggle. Because Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, you notice the word into, the number one preposition in the passage is in or into. The fact is, Paul's wanting to say, like you were in Adam from the beginning, since coming and being saved by the grace of God, you are now in Christ. Like you behaved and acted like your father Adam, now that you are in Christ, you will behave and act like your father, Jesus Christ, your elder brother, and God His Father. Since you are in Christ, you will behave as Christ behaved. You will live like Christ lived. 
He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Go down into verse uh, 5. For if we have been united with Him in death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in the resurrection like His. Here's the explanation of what it means to be baptized into Christ's death. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him. Old self. Your, your translation may say, old man. But be very careful here. John Stott reminds us that it is not Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde living in a Christian body. That's not the gospel. That's not the truth he's teaching here. It's not to a split personality. The old man, the old self, the old body of sin has been crucified with Jesus Christ. It is dead. It's dead. And just like you were crucified with Christ, he goes on to say then, like you died with Him, you were buried with Him. Into a burial like His. And like you were buried with Him, you were raised with Him to new life. The old man is dead, buried, and gone, and the new man is raised. The new creation doesn't begin at the second coming. The new creation begins at every moment that someone becomes an in-Christ person, a new life person. You, who have been saved by grace, are living in the new creation. You are the representatives of the new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us. We have a new man, a new life. Colossians chapter 3. Don't be like the old man, but be the new man. It's not Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know what I'm talking about? The straight, some of you young people might not know. So the straight-laced Dr. Jekyll, who, uh, I mean, let me get it right. This is before my time. Aaron, help me. Is that my, am I right? Dr. Jekyll was the straight-laced one. Okay. Whew. I'm not a child of the 60s, early 70s either. Okay. Dr. Jekyll, the straight-laced, nine-to-five, good man. But when he goes home at night, out of his basement comes Mr. Hyde. The villainous, wicked, conniving, lying, selfish, and hateful Mr. Hyde. And see, some of us live under that right now. You, you think, well, I've got, I got this old man in me. And I've got this new man in me. No. The old man is dead and buried. And the new man is alive. So Paul says in the strongest way, sin in a believer's life is the most despicable, illogical act on the face of the earth. When you sin, you are speaking a contradiction. We have been buried with Him. We have been raised with Him. And now in verse 5-14, through 14, it says we are free from sin. We are living a new life now. 5 
We've read, so we pick up in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. For so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I want to pause there and say, here Paul introduces the idea of sanctification. What I was describing earlier is known as justification. Our standing before God has been determined. It is finished. It was done at the cross where we all were crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised with Christ. Fact. Done. Complete. Now he raises the idea of sanctification. Which is that the life now lived in the flesh is no longer according to the flesh, but according to the new life that we have in Christ. So now we don't have to be shackled with sin any longer. We're free. And that's where people stop. It's where I'm prone to want to stop and say, I'm free. I'm free. But let's continue here in the passage. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passion. That's the first command in the passage, by the way. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God, to those as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. That's not a question. That's a stated fact. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now I've read this and done a little exposition, but let me give you a full exposition of this passage I've just read. I mentioned that this idea of with Christ and in Christ is predominant in this passage. And it is. And so I want to say, what does it mean then? Because I know you're thinking, I, I sin. I sin. So what does it mean that I'm dead to sin? What does it mean that sin no longer rules over me? What does that mean? Three P words. These, these words are all... They're, they're all the, the language. I went back as far as uh, Cranfield, and he's the first one I found that used it, but he probably got it from somebody. And every major theologian in our stream since then has used these three words to describe what it means to be dead to sin. The penalty, the power, and the presence. Okay? We are now released from the penalty of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are in condemnation in Adam, and now that Christ is your head, you no longer have condemnation. The wrath of the law is not against you. God is not going to punish you. You are free from that. That's part of what it means. And the power. Free from the power of sin. We are free from the power of the sin in the sense that We are being sanctified even now. We're justified. That's the penalty. We no longer have that. And now we have freedom from the power of sin, which is sanctification. We're no longer obliged to sin. We're no longer desiring sin. We're no longer seeking sin. We're no longer obeying sin as our master. 
But the presence of sin is still there. That one is left until the final day when he shall raise the dead and change those who are living. And at that moment, the presence of sin will cease. There will be no more. We'll be glorified. At his coming, we'll be made like him. Okay? But let me describe this presence for you so you don't use it as an excuse and so I can't use it as an excuse. Okay? Penalty and power. Broken, done away with. They have no more control over us. But the presence is still there. So think of your life as your house, your home. Okay? Where you live, where you lay your head down, that's your life, the house is. The owner of the home is the master. Everything else in the home is the slave. Okay? So when you were in Adam, Satan held the title deed to your home. It was his. It belonged to him. He sat on the throne of it. Along with your sinful flesh and your ungodly desires. They ruled your house. And your members, your body parts, your mind, your heart, your emotions, they were ruled by Satan, flesh, desires. That's what was ruling your life. Your members, your mind, your heart, and your physical body was chained to those masters. Chained to them. They were commanding you every minute of every day. If you're here without Christ today, you fool yourself to think you're free. You're a slave. You want to know how I know it? Because some of you, some of you won't get home today without opening your phone and looking at pornographic image. Your wife will be in the seat next to you, your kids will be in the back seat, and you'll be craving it so bad. You can't walk away from it. You call that freedom? You know how I know? Some of you will barely get through the door today before your desire for alcohol is so strong you have to crack a can or pop a bottle and pour you a glass. Is that what you call freedom? And you think that's just your flesh. It is your flesh, but it is under the dominion of sin. And sin is your master. You know how I know? Because some of you couldn't stop backbiting and hating one another until you touched the front door. And you said, okay, straighten up, we're going inside. And as soon as you hit the door and shut your car door, it will control you again. And all week, your home will be run on intimidation, hard words, hatred, dislike, conniving, lying, backbiting, gossiping. It'll be controlled by it. If that's what you want to call freedom, be my guest. It looks a lot like slavery to me. 
before you came into the knowledge of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the penalty of the wrath of God was on your life and the power of the slave master of your flesh and desires and Satan himself ruled you. And you could not for, you could not for a minute be free of it. Even when you tried to be free of it, you fell victim to another one of the members of sin, which is self-righteousness. Because you didn't look at pornography this week, and you told yourself and everyone around you how good you were. And the whole while, the flesh laughs. (laughs) He's foolish to think he's free of me. He's got you on the chain. You are not free. But listen, Christian. Your title deed to your home, because God is a God of mercy and grace, through Jesus Christ, was transferred. At the cross, the burial and resurrection of Christ, He took from death and Satan and flesh the title deed of your home, Christian. He swiped clean the strong man in the house. Remember he told his disciples, no fool goes and breaks in a strong man's house while he's still moving around. He waits until he binds the strong man. And then he goes in. Right? That's what Jesus did. Satan and the flesh and the desires were ruling and Satan and the flesh and desires were bound at the cross. He bound them. And when he came up from the grave, he threw them out. He evicted them. From the house. The throne of the house. The ruling of the house. He evicted them. He put them in the corner. They're bound now. The flesh is bound. Satan is bound. Desire's bound. They're all in the corner. They're sitting over in the corner. And Jesus is now ruling through His Spirit in your life. He is the Master. He has cut the chains of the power and the penalty of sin. They no longer control you. They're bound in the corner, but they're still there. And what happens to us so often, Christians, is the member of our tongue, let's just use that one, because that one plagues us all. The member of our tongue in our house, in our spiritual house, it's going about its daily duty, which is praising God and showing thankfulness from the heart and upbuilding other Christians and preaching the gospel to the lost world. And it's going about its business. And all of a sudden, the flesh says, don't you get tired of that? Remember when we used to have so much fun? Hey, it's not going to hurt for you to talk bad about that person behind their back. It's not a big deal. Come on. Try it. So the tongue goes and does what the bound ex-master says to do. That's why James says in James 3 that the tongue is a fiery member. It's set on fire by hell. He who can bridle his tongue can bridle the whole body. Because it's an easy target for the old masters. They start barking orders and it responds quickly without thinking. That craving for sexual fulfillment that used to rule you and control you is bound in the corner. It doesn't control you anymore, but sometimes it begins to holler out and call. 
Its presence is there, but it has no power. So what I'm saying is, Christian, you don't have to sin. You do not have to sin. You are not required to obey sin, Satan, and the flesh. God hears no excuse when you say, I can't help it. We need to speak frank with one another. If you're living in sin like that, you're either lost or you're in rebellion against the master of your house. When you sin, you chose it. It wasn't forced on you. You took yourself and presented yourself back to sin and said, here, I'll live this way for a while. But it does not control you. It is not your master. You are free. Some of us are excusing our sin at Grace Fellowship. And we need to stop. Before God, we need to quit. Excusing it and confess it. And say, you know what? I talk the way I talk. I think the way I think. I act on those things. Because of my own free will choice. I chose it. It's not genetics. It's not the power of sin still reigning on you. It's the fact that you took yourself back there. And presented yourself there. Verse 15. What then shall we say? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Sounds a little bit like that first question. It's a little different. I want to explain it to you. In verse 14, it introduces law and grace. Under law, under grace. Under grace is never used in any other verse in the Bible except these verses. It's not used anywhere else. But under law is used by Paul seven times. Most of those occurrences happen in Galatians. So hold your place in Romans and turn to Galatians to see what he means by under law. Okay? Verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, Born under law. The is not in the original language. There's no, there's no the there. It's just under law. Jesus was born under law. Same phrase as we have in Romans 6, verse, verse 15, verse 16. Born, born under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, seated on the throne of our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what he means by being under law is that, under, is that idea of being under the righteous requirement of the law in the saving sense. Not that you are under law in the Christian sense 
But listen, the idea of being under law here is that if you keep the law, you live. If you don't keep the law, you die. So Jesus was born under law. Being under law is not a sin. If it was, Jesus would have been a sinner. Being under the law is, if I keep the law, if I live by the law, I will live. And if I break the law, then I die. Jesus was born in that very environment. Like Adam was. He's just like Adam. Adam was put in the garden under law. What was the law? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He was under law. He was under righteous requirements of obedience. He didn't keep it. Christ was born just like Adam, under law. And He fulfilled it perfectly. He kept it. Therefore, He, through Him, we have adoption as sons. He seated on our heart through the Holy Spirit, cries out to the Father, and we're no longer slaves, but we're sons. We're heirs of God. He goes on to describe our condition under the law was that we were slaves to unrighteousness. In effect, we could not keep the law. It was good, but we couldn't keep it. Verse 21 says, Tell me you who desire to be under law, do you not listen to law? For it's written. And he goes on to describe that this idea of being a legalist, it doesn't work. Because you can't keep the law. We've done a good job of preaching that at Grace Fellowship. I look back through countless sermons over the eight years. And we have said that over and over and over again. What we haven't always said well is that not being under law and being under grace does not mean you're at liberty to live however you want to live. What we have failed to say clearly, distinctly, is that not being under law means I'm no longer under the requirement of the law for righteousness, but I live by faith in the Son of God who kept the righteous requirements of the law. And now because I'm no longer under law but under grace, I now have the desire and the ability to follow the model of Jesus Christ and live like He lived. That's what we haven't said very well. I failed there. I'm afraid it's led some of you in danger of your soul. And so, I repent publicly. I'm sorry for not being clear. May it never be that Grace Fellowship is a group of no law, lost people. May it be that we are gospel people. We are not under law. We are under grace. Which means, Christ has earned our righteousness. And we willingly and lovingly and desire to live like He lived. The moral law stands today like it did in the Old Covenant. It's what the Reformers called the third use of the law. Being under grace means that we now see the moral character of God through the Spirit and we long to be like our Father. 
for you to say, I don't want to follow the law, I don't have to do the Ten Commandments, is to say, I don't have to be like God. And Peter quotes the law saying, Be holy as I am holy. That's a command. Be holy as I am holy. Our lives should not be marked by anarchist freedom. As if we live in a home where we sit on the throne. But it should rather be the true liberty of the gospel. Where we are free from the power and penalty of sin. And we present our bodies to the living Lord of our life. To follow Him. Till the day we die. That should be the definition of our church. Of our lives. We're not slaves to sin any longer, Paul says in verse 16. So don't obey like a slave. Don't do what your body says to do or what your mind says to do. But rather, we are now slaves of righteousness. This gets back to the idea, verse 16 and 17 teaches clearly, you are not a free person in the sense that you have no master. You have a new master who has set you free from the old tyrannical devil and his work. You have a new master. So what are the characteristics of this new Life. Thanksgiving, but thanks be to God. Thanksgiving is a characteristic of a grace-filled life. That you who were once slaves of sin, you have been freed from sin, have become obedient from the heart. Your desires have changed. Now you desire to follow Christ. To be like Christ. Thankfulness, freedom from sin, and an obedient heart filled with a passion and a love to follow God. That's the definition of gospel freedom. Thankfulness because we are free from sin and we're free to obey God. What we could not do before, we can do. And further than that, we should do it. Once you presented yourself to impurity and lawlessness... But now I'm saying, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So how do we do this? Three things I want to say about that quickly. First, and it's an everyday thing. It's not a once in a lifetime thing. It's an everyday and a moment by moment thing. We need to know, we need to know who we are. First of all, we need to know that we by nature are sinners. If I was on the throne of my heart, I would be sinning every moment of every day. We need to know that. And we need to know the second half, which is we are sons of God. Because we died with Christ, we're buried with Christ, and raised with Christ, we're now His sons. God's sons. We need to know that. Secondly, we need to consider, reckon ourselves dead to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin. That's directly from the passage. You know who you are and you consider yourself dead to sin. And third, you then present yourself to God. You present your members to God for righteousness. Let me go through it with you. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. This is what it should sound like coming from your bedroom in the morning. God, as my feet hit the floor 
this morning, I'm fully aware that in myself I'm capable of every sin on the face of the earth. I'm no better than the next man. Every desire of my natural heart is to live for myself, for my kingdom, and for my pleasure. But I'm free from that now, God. By Your grace, You've set me free from that. And now I'm Your child. And it is my deepest desire and want to be like You, my Father. And so I rise from this place to go and prepare myself for the day, considering that I am dead to sin. And when I say I'm dead to sin, Lord, what I mean is my tongue is not free to say whatever it will say, whenever it says it, however it says it. But Lord, this is Your tongue, not mine. May I learn to praise You with every breath and thank You with every thought. And may I learn to build up my brother and not tear someone down to make myself feel better. Oh God, help my tongue. It is Your tongue. And God, my ears are Your ears. I don't want to hear the things of this world. I only want to hear Your Word and Your praise. So God, fill my ears with Your Word and with Your thoughts. Oh Spirit, control them. When they hear the bad, help them to close and walk away. And when they hear the good, help them to draw near to that. And oh God, this mind is Your mind. It is not an idle mind sitting at the throne of the whims of the pleasures that are in my wicked heart. That's not my mind, God. My mind is renewed and set on You. You are the fascinating, most beautiful, most complete of all the universe. And my mind treasures You today. It doesn't treasure my wants, my desires, my plans. I want Your plans. You, God, are my treasure. Do I need to keep going? Hands, feet, heart. It all needs to be prayed over. Not once at the altar of repentance, but every day. And as I'm going through the day, thought enters the mind. Man, you've worked so hard. You deserve. You deserve you have a right to that candy bar. You earned it. The gospel should then spring to mind and say, I don't deserve anything. That's a lie from Satan. I'm not going to believe it. I haven't earned anything. When I finished my day, all I've done is I've done what my master told me to do. I'm just an unworthy servant. I don't deserve any of that. See, because it's in believing those little lies about the candy bars that makes the woman easy to take and break your covenant of marriage. Because a rights mentality is a rights mentality. A deserving heart is a deserving heart. So it can deserve a snicker. It can deserve a blonde that's five foot eleven and flirts with you. It's the same path. The gospel has to be preached to all of those desires. I haven't earned anything. I don't deserve anything. I've only been an unworthy servant. I've done what you've called me to do. You see the difference between the thought that there's no law and I'm not under the law, therefore I can do whatever I choose and want to do? That's, that is foolishness. Don't believe it. It will send you to hell. But rather to say, hey, I'm all God's. Every bit of it. Every thought, every word, every deed. 
We laugh and scoff at little children's rhymes. But we ought to listen to them. Oh, be careful of lies, what you see. Oh, be careful of little ears, what you hear. Little hands, what you do. Little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in condemnation. In what? In love. So be careful. The motivation to this is not guilt. The motivation to this is we have a Father of love. When you think, I've worked hard enough, I've done enough, that's not the gospel. And when you say, at the end of the day, you look at your life, let me just give you some very practical things and we'll close. You look at your life and you say, I read my Bible, I prayed, I spoke about Christ, I didn't look at that girl when she walked by, I didn't follow the temptation of pornography, I didn't say a curse word, I've helped the little old lady across the street, God loves me today. That's not the gospel. Luther used to say, your vessel is filled with the righteousness of Christ, therefore you may add nothing to it. So any righteous deed you do, they don't earn you anything with God. And when you get to the end of the day and you look back at your lazy, sinful life, and you say, God doesn't love me. You're not believing the gospel. And when you enter the situation with the thought, He'll forgive me. You fall and pray to antinomianism. You've said, it's free, I'll take it. May I tell you? Christ died. He died. So you wouldn't take it. He died so you wouldn't think it. He died so you'd be free. Free from its power. Why go back and bow down at the altar of sin? He has cut you free. I'm not saying your sin means Christ had to die more. No. I'm saying your sin is evidence you're not believing that He did die. And He has set you free. That's what Paul says. Present yourself to God for righteousness sake. May we rise above this antinomian legalism and this legalistic legalism and really fall into the category of delightful duty. The motivation is to be like Christ. The motivation is to sense God's pleasure. The motivation is to know Him and to be known by Him.